0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan today, and I'm going to be guest hosting on the Thursday and Friday of this week as well we have got some terrific guests uh, uh, on the show today, but I'm going to start by talking about something that has been in the news over the last few days that that frankly seems very strange to me. And that is the Democrats' effort to portray President Donald Trump as someone who is anti-military. This started with an article in the Atlantic Magazine a few days ago. And this was an anonymously sourced piece written by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the who runs Atlantic uh, magazine. And, and this article alleged that a couple of years ago, uh, when he was in Europe, President Trump uh, declined to visit a military cemetery. I think it was somewhere in, in Europe. Uh, and, and said at the time that the soldiers who fought in the Second World War were losers or suckers or something like that. And, and so that that sounds so totally unlike President Trump. And so, who, who's the source for this? Who, who who alleges that he was present and heard and heard Donald Trump say this? The answer is nobody. Uh, the sources are anonymous. The Atlantic won't say who they are, so they can be checked. And and the Atlantic explained kind of humorously that that the sources insisted on being anonymous because they were afraid that if their names were published they would be criticized or attacked on twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try being a conservative sometime on on twitter and uh, and see if you get uh, criticized or attacked. So so th- that was the that was the piece in the Atlantic. Uh, President Trump didn't want to visit the cemetery and he said that these soldiers in World War II were losers. And and of course the people who are actually there with President Trump like Sarah Sanders and John Bolton Uh, say vociferously that the Atlantic story is a lie, uh, that is absolutely untrue, that Trump uh, did no such thing, said no such thing. And in fact, there's documentary proof that the reason that they didn't visit the cemetery was the weather and, and not because of some discretionary decision on the part of the president. So I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that that story in the Atlantic magazine is false. It seems very clear. But the idea that President Trump doesn't like the military is one that has become a theme on the left. It's really interesting. So the lead story in yesterday's Washington Post was headlined, quote, Trump has history of disparaging military. Again, this is the top story in yesterday's Washington Post. Now, one of the funny things about this, of course, is that until now, the Washington Post has never had a problem with people disparaging the military. The Post disparages the military with some regularity. Remember when Bill Clinton said, I loathe the military? Uh, <laughs> I loathe the military. Well, that's about as clear as it can get. But the Washington Post, of course, never had a problem. Uh, with that, and many other Democrats have have disparaged uh, the military as well over the years and and one of the things that seem weird about this is that President uh, Trump is well known to be a fan of the military and and most significantly, he has built the American armed forces back up to fighting strength after eight years of neglect under president obama and if that isn 't pro military i i, I don 't know what is. And Trump spends a lot of time visiting troops and having his picture taken, especially with enlisted men and women whom he particularly enjoys uh, talking to. So where's the Washington Post coming from? What is their evidence for the the claim that that Trump uh, has a history, as they put it, of disparaging the military? Well, it's things that did not, in fact, disparage the military, (laughs) like, for example— Uh, President Trump was quoted at some point as saying that he was lucky that he got a high number in the draft lottery back in the late 1960s, so he wasn't drafted during the Vietnam War. Well, a lot of people felt that way, including me. I got a high enough number in the draft lottery that I didn't get drafted, and and I still consider that to have been lucky, uh, even though I am anything but a disparager. Of the armed forces, so so that's just an example of something that is not, in fact, uh, any kind of a of a disparagement of the of the military. And so so what is going on here? What is the point? Why are the Democrats all of a sudden launching this very uncharacteristic attack on President Trump that he that he doesn't like the military? Well. I think my partner, Paul Maringoff, on uh, Powerline uh, probably came up with the right answer. And I think a couple of other pundits have said something similar. He did a post uh, yesterday, the title of which was Why the Drumbeat About Trump and the Military. And as I just did, he talked about the Atlantic story, which is pretty obviously untrue, and the Washington Post story, which uh, just didn't have any facts to back up the, the headline. And, and he talks about the fact that if you go, go all the way back to uh, 2004, the Democrats attacked uh, President Bush's service in the Texas Air National Guard many years earlier. In fact, I think today, I think today might be the anniversary of Rathergate, uh, when when 60 Minutes aired that story, and we, as well as others on the internet, uh, debunked it and showed that it was a lie based on uh, fake fake documents. But 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 Paul writes on Powerline that there's more going on with this line of attack in 2020 than there was 16 years ago. He says, I think they, the Democrats, believe that military intervention might determine who serves as president. The charitable version is that they fear a defeated Trump won't leave the White House, thus requiring military action to remove him. And they've said this publicly. They've said the Army should be prepared to drag Donald Trump out of the White House if he loses the election. I mean, completely ridiculous. But another version, Paul writes, and this, I think, is what's really going on. Another version is that Democrats don't intend to accept a Trump victory in a close election and will want the military to help it oust a victorious Trump. And a variation, he writes on both versions, is that there won't be a clear winner. And and Paul uh, Paul Marengoff says... The point is that by depicting Trump as someone who doesn't respect the military and has actually disparaged military service, the mainstream media is trying to increase the likelihood that the military will back the Democrats if there is a post-election dispute over who shall be president as of January 20, 2021. Now, all of that might be sound far-fetched, except that, as we've also written about on Powerline, the Democrats have been laying the groundwork to prepare the rest of us for the idea that we may not know who wins November's election. There was a piece in a left-wing site called Axios, which I wrote about a week ago on Powerline, Um, My post was titled, The Democrats Explain Their Voter Fraud Plans. And in this piece, uh, they wrote that a a Democratic data and analytics firm told them that it may well look on election night as though Donald Trump has won, maybe in a landslide. And they're going to have to keep counting and counting and counting mailed in ballots for days and possibly for weeks before they will count to a point where Joe Biden actually will win the election. Now, this is the whole mail in ballot fiasco and the fact I think the Democrats are planning on creating chaos that will make the aftermath of the 2000 election, with the hanging chads in Florida, look like child's play, I think there may be 10, 12 states uh, where we don't know—at least the Democrats claim we don't know—who won the, who carried the state. And they're going to be counting and counting and counting, and and election judges will be arguing over the validity of write-in ballots, whether they're legitimate or not. And they'll have to check every single written ballot to see whether that person already voted on Election Day, the ones that come in after Election Day, which in many states can be done, or on Election Day, which is legal in every state. And so and so I think the Democrats are preparing for a long drawn out post election battle in which they will be prepared to claim that Joe Biden has won the election, even though that is far, far from clear in, uh, in any election returns. And they think they might need the military to make that real we'll be right back after these messages
0: exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's Dan Proft and this is the Dan Proft show
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. And I'll be back again on Thursday and Friday. We've got some terrific guests lined up. I want to take a little walk down memory lane now, but one that I think is pretty relevant to a number of the things that we're seeing uh, today. A friend of mine and a reader of of the website that I contribute to, uh, Powerline, sent me an email this morning saying, Hey, today is the anniversary of RatherGate. Well, that hadn't occurred to me, and I haven't looked it up to confirm that that's true. But I think it's right. I, I, it sounds right, and and um, and I'm I'm sure he's probably correct about that. And and uh, one of the things that I found in talking to young people is that most of them don't remember RatherGate, don't Don't know what that whole scandal was about. Older people may remember it dimly. But I was deeply involved in it, and it was a significant thing at the time. I want to hearken back and back to it and and connect it to some things that we're seeing in the political world today. This Rathergate took place during the two thousand and four presidential campaign, so it was sixteen years ago today. And what happened was that sixty minutes ran a story on george w. Bush's Service in the Texas Air National Guard back in the early 1970s. And of course, in 2004, Bush was the incumbent uh, president running for reelection. And this story in 60 Minutes attacked uh, President Bush's uh, uh, service in the Texas Air National Guard. Uh, It it made him look like a slacker, like he wasn't uh, fully discharging his responsibilities there. Uh, and, and, and so forth. And, and the story was based on four alleged documents that dated to the early 1970s. And the day after this story aired, uh, we started looking at those documents on on Powerline, as others did around, uh, around the Internet, and quickly came to the conclusion that they were fakes. Uh, they, they, In my view, it was obvious that they hadn't been typed on an early 1970s typewriter, because I used typewriters in the early 1970s, and I know what those documents looked like. And these didn't look anything like that. They looked like documents that had been produced very recently on a word processor. And in fact, they were. They were produced very recently on a word processor using the default settings of Microsoft Word, uh, which include the, uh, the font uh, uh, Times New Roman. Well, so we started writing about this, and over the course of the day on on uh, September eight, I guess it was twenty o four, readers of our website Powerline uh, were writing into us, pointing out reasons why these documents uh, couldn't be genuine, and some of it had to do with the um, with the with the physical qualities, the the typographic qualities of of the document. So, just to take one example. They were all typed in Times New Roman, but Times New Roman was never licensed for use on any typewriter. That's just one example out of out of many. and And there were other problems with the with the documents as well. Uh, a lot of the the abbreviations, for example, that were used were not correct. A lot of the formatting of of the documents was not correct, was not the way that memos were were formatted or were not the abbreviations that were actually used in the Texas Air National Guard back in the 1970s. And, of course, we didn't know anything about that. But, but readers from all over the world, as this whole thing started to catch fire and people realized that this, this, this theory, this claim against President Bush was, was, uh, was being examined, people from all over the world started contributing their knowledge about things like how memos were formatted in the 1970s in the Texas Air National Guard. To me, the most significant problem with the documents always was the content. The New York Times, when this whole thing was over, tried to float the idea that the documents were fake but accurate, a standard that had never before been heard of in the history of journalism, fake but accurate documents. But the problem was they weren't accurate at all. Uh, And and, and a number of readers were able to point out ways in which the documents were clearly at variance with, with known facts. And probably the most significant was one of the documents that that alleged that uh, General Stout, that would be Brigadier General um, Buck Stout, who who commanded the Texas Air National Guard, at the, uh, allegedly at that at the time was was protecting somehow Lieutenant George W. Bush. Well, it turned out uh, a reader sent us a link to a news story that indicated that General Stout had retired from the Texas Air National Guard a year and a half before that memo was supposedly dated so there are all kinds of problems with those memos uh, having to do with their substance their formatting as well as the the typewriter type issues that seem to get most of the uh, most of the publicity but what was shocking about that incident to us and really to people all over the world was the rapidity with which these problems with the 60 Minutes program came into focus and in fact less than 12 hours went by between when my partner Scott Johnson hit the publish button on the original version of our post called the 61st minute and then we updated it many many times over the course of the day but less than 12 hours went by between that first publication and when CBS News announced that they were launching an investigation into this uh, 60 Minutes report and into what had gone wrong. And so, and they eventually concluded that the thing was was completely bogus. And, and that incident, which happened 16 years ago today, um, kind of went down in history. And the reason is because it was one of the early incidents that showed the power of the Internet as a medium. Up until recently, uh, somebody could pull off a hoax like 60 Minutes tried to pull off in that case. And they might very well get away with it, because even though there might be people around the country or even around the world who might notice issues with the story that they were peddling, there wasn't any way to bring all those questions together and and get multiple voices heard on them, and 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 put out that information uh, in in real time, you know, in, almost instantaneously, and uh, and that happened. In, in the case of, of Rathergate, and it made it kind of a historic uh, incident. After that time, people have many, many times said to me, boy, you guys are really keeping the press honest. And my reaction is always, no, we're not. No no one's keeping them honest. They're worse than ever. And I guess my last comment on this, this little, uh, uh, as I say, walk down memory lane is, You know, have things changed? Well, if anything, I think they have changed for the worse. We are living today in the world of a press that doesn't even pretend to objectivity or, frankly, accuracy a lot of the time. We're living in the world of a so-called mainstream press that for three years peddled the fraud, the hoax that, that President Trump or his, his campaign colluded with the Russians in the 2016 election, a complete lie, and they peddled it for three years. The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and, and, and many, many more. And when it was exposed as a hoax, as a fraud, they were and are completely shameless. Completely shameless. You know, they haven't launched internal investigations to find out, oh, my gosh, how did our reporters and editors fall for this? You know, they're not sorry they did it. That fraud served its intended purpose, which was to entangle the Trump administration in these false allegations and and, and damage the Trump administration. They wanted to drive Trump out of office. That didn't happen. But but that whole episode obviously did seriously in, in inhibit Trump's ability to get things done in his first term. In my opinion, if you look back to 2004 and ask, uh, Have things gotten better? the answer is no, they haven't. In fact, things have gotten worse. We'll be back with more after these messages.
0: podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
1: We are joined now by John Morowski, a reporter with Real Clear Investigations. John, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me on. John, you wrote a piece on September 2nd at uh, Real Clear Investigations about critical race Theory. Uh, the title of it is um, uh, The Deeply Pessimistic Intellectual Roots of Black Lives Matter, the 1619 Project, and Much Else in Woke America. And I would say it's, it's beyond pessimistic. It is, it is deeply depressing to read about what's going on. Why don't you start, John, by telling our listeners what is critical race theory?
2: Critical race theory is it's actually hard to explain it in a single word because it's a lot of different concepts mixed together. But the core of it is that racism is a defining feature of American life and of American society, and it is permanent. It doesn't go away, even if people's attitudes change, even if people start – white people, meaning when I say people, I really mean white people, right? So when white people in uh, surveys will start expressing really positive attitudes about black people, they're willing to intermarry, have black neighbors, black friends over, worship in a black church – All these kinds of things that would have been uh, hard to understand even, you know, 75 years ago when there really was like hardcore racism in our society. None of that really changes the situation on the ground. Racism is permanently embedded and it works in structures. So even if people have good intentions and good feelings about black people, the system runs on autopilot and it crushes black people, but other people of color, which are now called BIPOC, black uh, indigenous people of color. And so it's systemic. And that's the kind of core concept. And out of that come all sorts of other uh, corollary ideas that have been developed by critical race theory that many people have heard about. Hate speech, systemic racism, whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, equity as opposed to equality, anti-racism, implicit bias, microaggressions, intersectionality. Um, those uh, Those are just some concepts that people have are throwing around and, and, and sort of accepting as self-evidently true. Now, the reason I got interested in this is that I was chatting with like my liberal friends and they would bring up these concepts and I would say, oh, so you're sort of adopting a critical race theory perspective. And I said, I'm not adopting any theory. This is just self-evident fact. There's no theory here. This is just fact. So they had accepted it as a default frame through which they viewed the world. And it was kind of a sensation I had is that I were talking to someone and they were talking to me about mercy, forgiveness, grace, salvation, sin, prayer, worship, fellowship, and even the Trinity. And I said, oh, and I would say to them, oh, you're a Christian. And they would say, what are you talking about? I didn't say anything about Christianity. I'm just talking about self-evident facts, sin, prayer, worship, mercy, forgiveness. Well, when so, you would say, well, no, that's Christianity. And they would go back to you and say, what are you talking about? That's just fact. So that's the kind of, that's how I got interested in it. I said, you know, I should write a, an article about it, explaining what it is and how it operates. And I didn't really set out to write an article criticizing critical race theory, but of course the article would have people in it who are not positively disposed to critical race theory. would have critics of critical race theory. But my point is really, my goal is simply to explain what it is and how it works and how it's gotten embedded in our society and it's become the default lens through which people are viewing race issues. And sometimes default, uh, it becomes a default lens almost overnight. You get the sense that people... Are, have sort of the conventional perspective on life on Friday, and on Monday when they wake up, they're critical race theorists. And it just it's a very rapid onset. It's very and, weird. Uh, you know, I, I,
1: I see people who last I knew were conservatives, and on Instagram or Facebook or something, they are parroting some of these themes of critical race theory, and I'm sure they have little idea where they come from, and I'm not, I don't know whether that means they've, you know, they're no longer conservatives, have they really changed their mind, or what's going on? This stuff you know, is kind of in the air.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like if you and I were having a conversation about freedom of speech or equality or things like that, we wouldn't know where it comes from either. Like you wouldn't know how much of that comes from John Locke or John Stuart Mill, how much of it comes from Plato or Aristotle, because our worldviews come from the European Enlightenment, come from Greek philosophy and Judeo-Christian, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Those are probably the three principal general you know, tributaries that feed into the broad river of our kind of worldview. But we wouldn't be able to identify where they come from unless we go to college and study this stuff in depth. And so likewise for them, except that it's happening in real time. Like, you know, the Judeo-Christian worldview, Greek perspective, and Europe, the European Enlightenment happened long ago, and they're, they're kind of murky, right, unless you study them. But critical race theory is actually happening right before our eyes. And so you can see it happening. And yet, People treat it as if it happened centuries ago. They just adopt the worldview and they're not really conscious that it's critical race theory. They just think that implicit bias is a an indisputable fact that white privilege is not something you can debate. It's just self evidently true. And the only people who would ask questions about it are white supremacists. Right. And so that's, that's how it happens. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's remarkably fast and it's remarkably overwhelming. So well John yeah, we I have got
1: yeah. I've got some questions about it and I'm going to yeah. ask you some questions about it uh, right after we get back uh, from this break. We're talking with John Marowski, a reporter with Real Clear Investigations about critical race theory and we'll be right back. No,
0: This, 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 this is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with John Murawski of Real Clear Investigations about critical race theory, uh, which all of a sudden seems to be just totally dominating our culture. One question that I've always had about this, John, is how does this theory apply to races other than blacks and whites? It seems like the only thing they ever want to talk about is is, is, is blacks and whites. But, you know, um, blacks yeah. are not the biggest minority group in our country. Hispanics are. Asian, the Asian-American population is about half the size of the black American population. And, and in the 2018 census, whites uh, in, 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 in median family income or household income, Whites ranked seventeenth. Uh, Indian Americans have got median household incomes about fifty percent larger than whites, but you know, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Iranian Americans, they all yeah. make more money than whites. Nigerian Americans, Ghanaian Americans on average, yeah, make so more I have, money I have than answers
3: to all of that. Yeah. So so what how
1: do they account for so this? So
2: there's two answers here. <clears throat> One is that the critical race theory immediately bifur- bifurcated or trifurcated, uh, branched out into variants. So there's the standard critical race theory, but there's kind of a version for Hispanics and there's a version for Arabs and there's a version for Asians. And so they've all developed uh, their own uh, type of critical race theory. Now uh, I mainly focused on the, the kind of the core type of critical race theory, which is, uh, you know, African-American critical race theory, which is what we see in the 1619 project in the New York times, but there are other types, there are other kind of variants of critical race theory. And when they When they come together and they interact, um, that is what we would call intersectionality. When all these theories, including gender theory and radical feminism um, and critical race theory and the other variants sort of negotiate and jockey together, then you get a a more complex, multi-layered perspective called intersectionality. Now, the question about all these other ethnic groups, you said 17 other ethnic groups who actually outperform whites. So here's the issue. Critical race theory is a framework that tells you which facts are important and how to interpret those facts. So according to critical race theory, the facts you just named aren't important. And so they, they're they a distraction from the, from the from the main attraction, really. Well,
1: they're quite, they're and, quite a distraction, John. They're quite a distraction yeah. because if they want to talk about white supremacy and white privilege, I don't know how supreme you are if you've got the 17th highest median household income. I mean, in what way is that privileged or supreme?
2: It just allows you basically to uh, change the subject and not talk about your complicity in white privilege. It's just an exception to the rule and exceptions tend to prove the rule. So it's not an important fact. It doesn't explain what's happened in the country for the past 400 years, of 250 years of slavery, 100 years of apartheid um, and the legacy of that. So they believe that is all very real and the fact that only in the past few decades, people are coming in and shaking up the system. Well, that's because uh, white privilege is, un- un- been, you know, whites have been unable to maintain their hold on white privilege. Of course, that's why they, the theory, will be, that's why they elected Donald Trump to bring things back in order to make sure those 17 groups, which come from, you know, shithole countries and are rapists and murderers are then pushed back in their place. That would be their explanation.
1: Right. So, so, so as as you said in, in your Real Clear Investigations piece, this is a deeply pessimistic uh, philosophy, and, and that always leads to the question of what do these people want? You know, what, what's the point? What are they looking for? Yeah, that's funny. You actually asked me that. Because I, a friend of mine just sent me an email, and in this email, he just said,
2: "If these people have anything positive to offer, it seems like the entire mission is is to punish the supposedly impure. If they could only and, and if they could only accomplish that, X would happen. But what is this X?" So you're asking the same question my friend was asking me. You know, they want to dismantle systemic racism and they want to eliminate implicit bias. And once that happens, then the society will operate fairly because presumably BIPOC or people of color are not infected with this pathology because uh, this is a particularly white Western disorder. And so once this happens, you would approach something like a fair, equitable society where social or economic and political power is distributed equally or distributed at least fairly. And things are looking up for everybody. It's kind of fair for everybody. So that's really what they hope for. It's a fair society, a just society. And that's what they call social justice. They want to bring social justice. But getting rid of this evil thing in our society is a battle. It's a, it's a war. It's a fight. And it requires being extreme vigilance and a complete lack of compromise with the slightest sign of white supremacy or implicit bias. And and of course, the slightest signs of it are no longer people burning crosses or making really crude jokes. It's it's, it's, uh, microaggressions and implicit bias, which is very subtle. These are very subtle things that now carry the day for white supremacy
1: and those are the things they're fighting against what you just said there john reminds me a lot of the alleged withering away of the state and marxism you know there's this sort of nirvana that's off there in the future but how exactly you get there is very hard to say you know it is a utopian i mean it depends on who you talk to because not all critical race theories aren't automatons they don't all agree on
2: everything some of them believe we're locked into a permanent struggle against social injustice and white supremacy, and therefore the dignity and the joy comes from the struggle. And others believe that ultimately when white people aren't in the majority, I think they cite the year 2045 as the magical year when the apocalypse will happen and white people will no longer be in the majority and the BIPOC will be in the majority and they will start electing. You have, you know, more and more people of color in corporate boardrooms in uh, legislatures in uh, you know in the provost 's office, and eventually they'll'll they'll be they 'll make the right decisions that will distribute power and economic goods fairly, so eventually we'll have a fairer society so I guess it sounds a little bit like Marxism in that sense, you know, and you know what gives this ideology so much power and so much moral force is one thing is that we constantly keep on seeing videos of Black people being killed by police. And we constantly keep on hearing their stories. And their stories are, you know, they can be very compelling stories. And if that's all you hear, you start believing that's all there is, right? And so that's one thing. But the other thing is the nation's history, and it's hard to get around the reality of the nation's history, the brutality of racism in the nation's history. And that is also a very compelling story. And if, we're, if we've removed ourselves from the past, as I believe we have, but many people believe we haven 't if we remove removed ourselves from the past it 's only been very recent and so we 're dealing with four hundred years of one thing and maybe forty years of another thing, and the forty years seems like just you know a blip on the longer t- you know, longer time frame right and so they have this fear that that 400 years is a kind of a permanent thing, and this is a blip. It's really just an exception, and Donald Trump is going to bring us back to a pure state of white supremacy. Or as,
1: or as Joe Biden said, he wants to put you, put you all back in chains. We're going to have to run now. Uh, John Murawski, uh, thank you very much. We're going to go to a commercial break. We'll be back after these messages. The have
0: done that. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker, and um, uh, in my in my daytime job is serving as president of Center of the American Experiment, which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit think tank located in Minnesota and one of the topics on which my organization has written extensively is energy we've got a top-notch expert named Isaac Orr, who works at the center and Isaac has written a lot about the fact that wind and solar energy are simply inadequate that we cannot rely on those forms of, of energy for our electricity and you can talk about this for a long time, but the fundamental reason is because they're unreliable, they're intermittent. If the wind doesn't blow, uh, the windmills don't turn and there's no electricity. If the sun doesn't shine, the the uh, photovoltaic panels don't generate electricity. And those things happen very, very often. The The best wind turbines only generate electricity about 40% of the time, most of the time. You have to be relying on coal or natural gas or nuclear, or large-scale hydro. Well, experts like Isaac Orr have been telling uh, governors and and so forth this for a long time, but some of the governors won't listen. And the people in California, the people who run California, have been unwilling to listen. And as a result, they are having terrible, terrible problems with their electricity grid. And yesterday, the mayor of Los Angeles, and my colleague Steve Hayward wrote about this on on Powerline, But yesterday, the mayor of Los Angeles put out a tweet. A tweet says, it's almost 3 p.m. Time to turn off major appliances. Set the thermostat to 78 degrees or use a fan instead. Turn off excess lights and unplug any appliances you're not using. We need every Californian to help conserve energy. Please do your part. And by the way, this is when it was 110 degrees in the Los Angeles area that the mayor is saying to uh, turn off your air conditioning and, in fact, turn off all of your major appliances. I don't even know what that means. TV sets, uh, uh, you know, I, re- refrigerators, freezers. I, I, I don't even know uh, the vacuum cleaners. Uh, but but California has become a third world country. Third world countries are the places where you only have electricity for a certain number of hours every day, and you have to plan carefully so that so that you can do certain things that require electricity uh, during those hours. And California has now had over the last year or two a series of rolling blackouts where Californians have not had electricity and that problem is getting worse all the time why is that well it's because they rely on wind and solar increasingly for their energy needs and uh, when the wind isn't blowing and the Sun uh, isn't shining uh, or at least not enough quantity to supply those needs uh, they're in deep deep trouble what we see in California with the blackouts we're gonna see in other states if the Green New Deal gets passed or if other states follow California's allegedly green energy policies. We'll be back with more after these messages.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today, and I'll be back again on the Dan Prof Show both Thursday and Friday. We are joined now by Terry Schilling, the Executive Director of the American Principles Project. Terry, thanks for being on the program.
4: Hey, thanks so much for having me, John. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Jerry, why don't we start by just asking you to uh, tell our listeners about the American Principles Project. What is it and what do you do?
4: Of course. So American Principles Project is the group run. Uh, It's a uh, 501c4 uh, action organization. And what we do is we organize families and parents in politics. To protect the American family. Uh, How I describe it to people is, you know, it's kind of like, you know, how the NRA organizes gun owners in politics to protect the Second Amendment. We're the NRA for families. We organize families in politics. And um, we fight on a lot of crucial issues like um, this transgender madness that's taking over our schools. We fight for school choice. Uh, We fight to lower taxes for families. We're fighting the Against the Black Lives Matter movement, which wants to eliminate the traditional family, and we also have a new uh, pr- newer project that we just started last year um, fighting online pornography and tr- helping protect children um, from accessing all of that garbage and um, so it 's one of the coolest new groups in d c and i 'm really proud of it and, and I think that there's one thing that that could change the world and change the entire country. It's organizing parents and families in politics, and 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 tapping into that that huge amount of energy that families um, um, bring and, and and the power that they they can have on elections.
1: Jerry, I want to ask you about a piece that was in the Christian Post uh, that where you're quoted, and it has to do with uh, a, an attack that Susan Rice made against uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and and she attacked him on a couple of grounds but in part for being too religious and I just want to read a quote uh, from her this is Susan Rice talking about uh, the Secretary of State she says Mike Pompeo has been an overtly religious Secretary of State which in itself is problematic because again he's supposed to represent all of America all of our religions all of our threads Talk about that, if you would. You know, I'm so old. I grew up at a time when it was expected that public officials, at all probability, were going to be religious, and they didn't necessarily have to keep it a secret.
4: Yeah, the, the, pro, the, the issue with Democrats like Susan Rice, and, and we started to see this happen under the Obama administration, is they call anyone who has tolerance, even, for Christianity, or willing to respect it as a respectable religion. They call them religious zealots. Even if you're not a practicing Christian, (laughs) you know, if you're just someone that, you know, respects Christians' ability to exist in America, uh, they criticize you um, as being overtly religious and zealot. Um, And it's it's a major issue for the country. And, um, you know, you look at Susan Rice's tenure and the State Department under Barack Obama, and all they pushed, the only way that you could lose U.S. funding or U.S. aid is if you had are anti abortion policies in your country or anti gay marriage policies in your country they they set up a new litmus test and they tried to force their values on the entire world this These are radicals, and it, it's just it makes the point why it 's so important that we need to keep them out of office and make sure they never take over the state department again
1: You are uh, quoted in this this same piece. Let me just um uh, read that and ask you to comment on it. This is from the Christian Post, and this is talking about Susan Rice criticizing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for being, quote, overtly religious. In other words, not only is he religious, <laughs> but he doesn't keep it secret, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. So the article goes on to say, Terry Schilling, executive director of the American Principles Project, also denounced Rice's comments, arguing that they hold significance for the 2020 presidential election. Now, they're quoting you here. We know Democrats will be even more hostile to religious Americans should they gain the White House and Congress next year. So Rice's comments should be another giant warning sign for voters of faith. Democrats like Susan Rice can't help but show their disgust when conservative Christians dare to even mention their faith. It seems obvious to me, uh, uh, Terry, that, that the left, which and by the left i'm including the the democratic party pretty much in its entirety uh is really trying to drive
4: christianity underground
1: is is that is that going too far
4: i don't think it's going far enough i mean they don't just want us underground they don't want us to be look they We've seen the left and what they've done in other countries like Canada, where they take custody away from parents for teaching their children Christian beliefs when it comes to human sexuality. I want to bring up, uh, you know, Democrats have had a war against Christianity since the Obama administration. And specifically what I'm going to refer to is what they did to the little sisters of the poor. Democrats like Barack Obama and even Susan Rice and the Department of Justice They weaponized our own Department of Justice and Health and Human Services, and they sued the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, because the Little Sisters of the Poor did not want to be forced to pay for abortion coverage, abortifacients, and birth control. Now, I shouldn't need to tell the listeners that nuns are celibate, and they don't really need birth control in the first place, but but I want to go – this is just so – eye-opening. for The Little Sisters of the Poor provide hospice care to sick, lonely, and dying people who can't afford their own hospice care. They, they do the work of God. And Barack Obama and Susan Rice and our entire federal government was suing them out of existence. They were fining them $700,000 a day. They don't bring in much money. They're charity. a day because they didn't want to buy birth control that they don't even need. And these Democrats are so not even anti-religious, they're anti-Christian. They are anti-American, and it's so important that they never get power ever again.
1: You know, Terry, you just made a point there that I want to follow up on, because it's one that I've scratched my head over. Um, You know, Muslims have got a lot of the same kinds of strictures that Christians do. In in, in many areas, you know, they're much stricter about certain areas of practice. Uh, have, Have the Democrats been going after Muslims the way they've been going after Christians?
4: No, and, and I, I, you know, there are a lot of theories for why they don't go after Muslims like they, do with, uh, like they do to Christians. And I think, frankly, it's because there is a lot of anti-Christian sentiment and a lot of anti-American values within the Muslim community itself. And so right now, they're very odd bedfellows, but they're aligned against the Christian value system that America has and has had since its founding. And I think that that's the only thing that makes sense, because you're exactly right. Muslims are not friendly to the LGBT community. They throw them off of buildings. They kill them, right? And they're not friendly to women either. I mean, they castrate. I mean, the things, this, this union between the Democratic Party and the Muslim community is very puzzling to me until you realize that they both dislike Christians with the same amount of hostility and And I think and I'm not talking about all all Muslims, but I am talking about the overall um, Muslim activists in this country who are politically engaged and involved. They don't like Christianity and need to do the Democrats, and so right now just aligned on trying
3: to destroy Christianity in America
1: well, yeah, and I mean another thing I've wondered about, Terry, is you know what is it that they most fundamentally I'm going back now to the left generally. Uh, and as you say, there are some odd bedfellows here. But but what is it that they fundamentally don't like? It, it, is, it, is it mostly Christianity that they don't like? Or is it really America that they don't like? Because America's what? heritage and traditions are, of course, Judeo-Christian. And, and I think a lot of the times um, it's, it's kind of hard to tell the two
4: apart. It's very hard to tell the two apart. It's hard to tell America and Christianity apart because of how our nation was founded. Our nation was founded under the premise, that our rights come are given to us by God, by our creator. And I think that ultimately that's what the Democratic Party, and, and right now they're not even a Democratic Party. They really are a party of Marxism. And what they hate about America and Christianity is that they America and Christianity say that there is an authority above government. There is an authority that says whether or not things are right or wrong, regardless of what man says and regardless of what Andrew Cuomo and all of these Democrats in power say and that they're going to be held accountable someday. But they hate the idea that the voters and that the American people respond and, and have more respect for God and are more loyal to God and their country than they are to their government and these radical Democrats like Barack Obama and Susan Rice.
1: We're talking with uh, Terry Schilling, Executive Director of the American Principles Project, and we will be uh, right back with more uh, from Terry after these messages. This is world we in and
5: these
0: are exposing. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Terry Schilling, the executive director of the American Principles Project, a C4 organization that represents American Families, uh, Terry, one of the areas where your organization has been prominent is in addressing some of these gender issues that have just kind of exploded over the last couple of years. You know a few years ago, I think many of us, most of us probably didn 't even know what the word transgender supposedly <laughs> means and now, my gosh, you can't send your kid to elementary school without having to think about, you know, your elementary school's uh, policies on uh, on transgenderism. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, Terry.
4: Of course, I think that the transgender issue is one of the most under-attacked issues of our time, and the reason is is because it attacks the issue of transgenderism attacks the human person actually at its very core base of what we are as human beings. We are made male or female, and that there is no around about it. And once you start to deconstruct that, you have utter chaos. You have news stories now, thousands of them, pregnant men. That's insane. The notion of pregnant men is insane. But there are actual real-world complications and consequences from this transgender movement that we're seeing play out right now. I'm going to start with the with the, the lightest of the bunch, and then I'm going to go to the heaviest. So on the lighter end of things, your daughters are going to have to compete against boys who simply just claim to be women. So, and we're seeing this play out across the country. You name the state, and they have transgender athletes competing against girls simply by claiming that they're girls. Let me
1: stop you there for a second, Terry, because this is something that's kind of mystifying to me. Do these boys who want to go in and compete against girls in you know, whatever it might be, basketball, track and field, you know, you name it, softball, do, do they have to be transitioning? I mean, do these have to be people oh. who, are, who have had surgery or are taking hormones? Can they just wake up one morning and say, I feel like a girl today, I think I'll go hit some softballs?
4: That's exactly right. All they have to do is claim to be a woman. They don't have to show any proof of transitioning, they don't have to submit hormone treatment or hormone tests or anything, because here's the thing, they're passing non-discrimination laws that make it so that if you question a child's claimed gender identity, you are at risk of a discrimination lawsuit that will cost you hundreds of thousands and possibly millions of dollars. And so they can't question your gender identity. They can't, they have to just accept whatever you say and claim, which makes it incredibly dangerous and incredibly chaotic.
1: So, staying with this 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 very limited issue, but 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 um, eye opening one of of girls' sports. I mean, some people think that uh, girls' sports are just going to fade into oblivion because you know it's pretty obvious that if you open up girls' sports, so why do we have girls' sports? You know, why are there girls' events over here and boys' events over there? Well, the answer is if you if you didn't have girls' sports, you know the girls would
4: not be able to compete with the boys, right? That's exactly right. Look, at the heart of, like the thing about human beings is that we've been around for a really long time. And over that really long time, we figured out a few things. One of the most basic things that we figured out is that men and women are totally different. Men tend to be, much more athletic than women are. It's why the NBA is different from the WNBA. The thing is, is that we created Title IX funding in Title IX in our civil rights law to give equal access to education and athletic opportunities to women, because we knew that if they put women and men in the same sports, that the women wouldn't stand out and they wouldn't have the same opportunities as men. This transgender movement pushes that entirely on its head. It allows men to tap into those resources that we've typically reserved for women. And frankly, I have two daughters. I mean, this is an issue that impacts a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I have two daughters, lots of other fathers out there like me, lots of other mothers out there like me. And our daughters play sports. They wake up early, they train, they lift weights, they work really hard. When they have to compete against boys, they're just going to stop working so hard, and they're going to go find something else to do besides sports.
1: It's so interesting, too, uh, Terry, because anybody who criticizes or questions this this regime, which has been installed just almost overnight. I mean, a few years ago, nobody even heard of it. Now it is, it is all around us. It's being imposed in a mandatory fashion uh, everywhere you look. And, and anyone who even questions it uh, is subject to cancellation in, in today's lexicon. So Martina Navratilova, Navratilova, for example, one of the great uh, women's tennis players of all time on Twitter, said, well, I don't think this is a very good idea. And she, uh, you know, she was uh, harassed and eventually, I think, forced to, to
4: recant. No, that's exactly right. And, and they are canceling us. And, but it's not just sports. They're canceling parents what I mean by that is they're now starting to take away custody from parents when their children claim, you know, they, they have these children that go into kindergarten and they teach them about gender identity and how it's fluid and that a boy can actually become a girl. And so these little boys come home confused and they tell their parents that they're actually transgender. And what happens is, is if the parents, like you're seeing in Texas right now with, with Jeff and James Younger, Jeff is the father of James, who's only seven years old. And right now he's in custody battle in Texas. This is not New York. This is not California. He's in a custody battle for his son, who, when his son is with him, he's a boy. He doesn't pretend to be a girl. He doesn't put dresses on. He wants to be treated as a boy. He's at risk of losing custody over his child right now because he rejects this transgender mania. That's where it gets really dangerous. So we start off with sports, which seems pretty harmless. But then he goes all the way over to ripping the custody away from parents who reject this. Ripping custody from their own children, your own flesh and blood that you've sacrificed for, that you created, that you provided for, and that you love more than anyone. The Democrats and the left-wing Marxists that run that party want to take your kids away from you if you reject this transgender mania. It's insane, John. It
1: is. It is completely insane. I read about one a young boy, an elementary school kid, who, who came home from school one day he was terrified because they'd been talking about transgenderism, and his takeaway was that at any moment. He might turn into a girl, <laughs> and of course, I love if, that boy. If you're, if you're like a nine-year-old boy, and someone says, "What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you?" He's probably going to answer, "Oh, I could be turned into a girl," you know. And he'd gotten That's the exactly right. He'd got the impression that this whole thing is so fluid, as they put it, that at any moment, you know, he might suddenly become a girl, and his parents had to. Uh, quiet uh, that that uh, that concern we only have about 30 seconds here left talking with terry Schilling of the american principles project my last question to you terry is how is this how is this battle going i mean are 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 we winning are we losing what's happening
4: it's uh, it's unclear right now but as it stands right now the transgender activists control almost every aspect of our you know elite institutions You you name academia hollywood the news media they've got major influences in all of them Our only recourse here to fight back and win this thing is through politics. Politics is the only cultural institution left that's still controlled by the majority of people, which is why we're running the campaign ads that we're doing in Michigan and Wisconsin. My idea, my theory and strategy is that once we start making the Democrats pay a political price for their transgender mania, extremism, radicalism, Once they start losing elections over it, they're going to start to pump the brakes. They're going to be forced to because they don't want to lose the presidency over this from here until kingdom come. And so it's very important that we all remain active and engaged in politics. And we know exactly where our politicians stand on these transgender issues.
1: Terry Schilling, thank you very much for being with us on the Dan Prof show. We're going to go to a break and we'll come back with Amity Schlaes.
0: podcast of the show at danprofshow.com
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hendrickker from Powerline filling in for Dan today and we are joined now by Amity Schleis, chairman of the board of the Coolidge Foundation and the author most recently of The Great Society, a history of the 1960s. Amity, thanks so much for being with us.
5: I'm always glad to be
1: on. Amity, you know, it's it's kind of ironic to have you on now because you uh, gave a lunch forum talking about your book, The Great Society, to my organization, Center of the American Experiment, in, in February, I believe it was, and it was right before the curtain fell down and everything became illegal, you know, meetings, lunch forums, gatherings of any kind. It was like the last normal thing that happened before the world went haywire.
5: That is correct, and we look back, uh, it's like yesterday before the today. There's a big divide called night. It was a wonderful event and wonderful to be in Minnesota to talk about um, what happened in the Great Society turned out to be very relevant. I'm thinking here about the riots, there's no other word for them, and the demonstrations of the 60s and the response to them, John, because there was a federal response then, too, And it wasn't confined to civil rights laws. There was also government spending from Washington to foster community action. And we're hearing calls for that today. Let's have some community action, Um, discontent with the police. um, And maybe the answer was, people thought at the time, well, if the federal government gets involved, then citizens um, of cities will be more enfranchised. So that was, we even had a poverty czar, Sergeant Shriver, people will know that name, who was in charge of, among other things, community action supported by the federal government. So that we've run this TV show before. We've seen this movie before.
1: Yeah, we've seen a lot of it before. But one thing we haven't seen before, I, I don't think, Amity, is what I would call the crazed reaction to COVID-19, which is, you know, frankly, a rather moderate respiratory virus. It's not the Black Death. And, and we've seen this, this, this ideology of safetyism that has, that has popped up in response to, to COVID. Talk about that a little bit, if you would, safetyism.
5: Yeah, I mean, you think about the social troubles we're having and the COVID reaction, both are about the ideal America must always be equal all the time, and America must be safe all the time. You hear that word, safe. And I, I uh, so what is safety, and can we ever be safe? Safety is relative, and it's, it's kind of a false assurance. Um, the promise of safety or social perfection, they're false assurance assurances, because governments can never deliver these things. Societies never can. So so personally, I was kind of taken aback by the COVID reaction. Um, and, and you think of other flus, of flus that have been around in the past, there was never this level of anxiety um, that we're having now. There, it, there, we've had terrible fatalities, but there was a even so, there was never this level of anxiety. I think it's partly because um, America, a lot of Americans haven't served in the military anymore, so they're not used to rough situations. Um, people in the military know uh, – I wasn't in the military, so forgive me for imagining. They know that um, they're often not safe. But they're All they're doing is r- reducing the risk for a dangerous exercise, and that's life, right? But I I think it's no service to our children to tell them that they're safe all the time. That just makes them even more anxious because they know that there's no, that even when they're young, they know there's no, um, no perfect safety. Recently I was at a bear park and the guide from the park service gave a little lecture to the people who are coming to see the bears and the guide said, you are not safe in the bear park. You might be less unsafe if you heed our 23 guidelines for for walking in a place where bears live. I thought that was wonderful. That's life. We walk among bears, the market kind, uh, the other uh, other kind. We walk among bears, uh, the unpredictables of life, and the only thing we can do is reduce the likelihood we'll be casualty to one bear or the other. And we, we also never we also, assure ourselves that we will never be gotten by a bear. We and, be and
1: we also walk around viruses. I mean, some of these people give the impression that they're just now learning that you can get sick, that there are diseases, and that as human beings we're mortal. You know, it's almost it's almost like this is coming as a. As a shock to some of these people yes, who, who it, believe I, that I,
5: I personally, personally I think it, it has to do with an absence simultaneously and contradictorily if that's a word a, a, an absence of religious faith or an absence of understanding that life ends and that we have to figure out how to deal with that so there's a kind of denial that life ends.
1: We're talking with Amity Schlaes, Chairman of the Board of the Coolidge Foundation and we'll be right back with more after this.
0: listen the more you'll know this is this, this is the Dan Prof show
1: We are back on the Dan Proft Show talking with Amity Schley, the chairman of the board of the uh, Coolidge Foundation and author, most recently, of The Great Society. Amity, before the break, we were talking about safetyism, this idea that somehow... I guess we're not going to die. We're not going to get sick. We're going to all be perfectly safe. You know, as, as you mentioned, there have been all kinds of epidemics in the past. The, the, I mix up the Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu, but one of them happened when I was in college, like 68, 69, somewhere in there. And I don't even remember it. You know, it, it allegedly killed, you know, large numbers of people. I don't, I don't remember it even being a news story. And and one thing that's changed since then, I think, is this kind of childlike faith in government, you know, that government somehow can save us from from anything.
5: Well, yes, that's true. Um, it's a lack of knowledge, a lack of acquaintance with death. Um, we hopefully won't die this week, but we will, all will die sometime. And young people don't seem to know that um so that that that's a real problem and there's a kind of um selective data uh, story going on we have plenty of data about covid but not the whole picture we know how many people die we hear that hourly sort of as in the vietnam war when we had the casualties on the nightly news but we don't know what per- their ages most of the time that's downplayed so we can't really analyze accurately what is the wise course to take as a family, a city, or um, an institution? The, right away, the the drug treatment for the COVID became politicized. Unfortunately, the truth is nobody knows what to do. So we're trying drugs in real time, or treatments, or we're analyzing ventilators. And you know, are they good? Are they bad? It turned out to be less good than we thought. Um, you know, but we had to learn that in real time. Unfortunately, tragically. So, so what disturbs me is this pseudoscience um, that comes out and doesn't offer the whole picture. Uh, I, I think one conclusion from the COVID story, John, is that everyone must take statistics freshman year of college.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and, and, and part of it is the hardest thing for many people is to acknowledge that there really isn't anything they can do, or there really isn't anything the government can do. You know, every problem, has to have a solution, and if it doesn't, we'll just make one up. So I think wearing masks is largely about that. Uh, there, there didn't seem to be much that we could do, and there, frankly, there isn't much you can do to quote, stop a virus, right? But the the whole uh, mask wearing uh, you know became you know essentially mandatory, and I don't know if anybody knows whether it actually does any good. Do you have a, any sense about that one? I well, know,
5: I am not an epidemiologist, and I have no opinion on that. but I do know that individuals make good decisions very often, not always, but very often when they're left to their own devices. Um, and this idea that only the government can keep us safe is misleading. Um, There are all the silent casualties of this. How many people have become addicted to OxyContin or become uh, toxic on marijuana in this period of idling? We don't know. How many people will never go back to work because they kind of got used to not working and being sad and alone? Quite a number, but we we don't know. So we have a few numbers that make us panicked about COVID, and we don't have the other numbers. Um, I was reading The the Plague by Albert Camus, uh, which is about a plague in an Algerian city, and there's this wonderful line where um, the narrator says, alas, no one knew how to compare the plague to anything. Was it worse or better um, than all the other things going on um, that assail our health? Nobody knew that in Algeria in 1940. Well, now um, we know a lot more, but that information isn't always available. Um, so so um, I think people are going to turn to primary sources. But the main thing is it's, this is, it's a terrible lesson to impart to our next generations that the government will make them safe or they have to build a government that's bigger so it can keep us safe. I, I do also blame... Um, the war on terror culture and the laws that came with the war on terror, because they also have a kind of tension and military aspect. Think of what you go through at an airport that was not so present in the United States prior to 2001.
1: So um, you you made a comment, Amity, about, about government, you know, as being the source of all safety and also your, your view that individuals, generally speaking, can figure out what's best for them. And that ties in very well with the approach that was taken to COVID in in the state of South Dakota, which is where I come from, where Governor Kristi Noem refused to enter any kind of an order. And she went on television and said, uh, one, Americans are free people. I don't have the power to order people to do anything. And and two, uh, South Dakotans are smart and they can look after their own health a lot better than the government would ever be able to do. So we'll give information, we'll make recommendations, but I'm not ordering the people of South Dakota to do anything. That that was refreshing, and it also worked very, very well.
5: Well, it, thank God we have the states. Let's keep them is the main answer. Because every state has its own path it chooses. And later, we can all look at it and review it. We can compare South Dakota to Sweden, we can compare it to Uruguay, and we can draw the logical responses, the conclusions from the data. But before the data is available, of course these experiments are are good. They're they're absolutely necessary because no one knows how to handle something like COVID, so we're learning. Um, And those who would suppress the state experiments are not on the side of um, the American people, really, because the states are our laboratories. So, so that's my main thought. Christine Noem's kind of brave. She might be wrong. She's kind of brave in any case, and we need brave people. So, so there we are, um, you know, watching, watching all this. Uh, it, it's, it's quite a different mood. Um, and I think everyone who's listening who's a homeschooler, I'm, we're very glad you're teaching your kids about um, risk in life and that life is full of risk trade-offs. That's all it is, a number of encounters, serial encounters with risk. And what is reducing risk and, uh, and why reduction of risk um, is different from claiming safety.
1: Yeah, there's always some risk in life. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's kids to whom the risk of COVID is the lowest uh, and, and it's their schools that in many places, probably most places, are not being allowed to reopen. we got to run to a break now, and we will be back for a, one more segment with Amity Schlitz. She's my sweet little life. she's
3: my pride and joy, she's my sweet little baby, I'm a little lover boy.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Amity Schlaes. And Amity, we've been talking about the, uh, the COVID epidemic and the response to it and and the kind of unrealistic expectations of, of the government and, and, and safety and so on that we've seen we've seen play out. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of the of the shutdowns, the COVID shutdowns on the economy, because frankly they've been they've been pretty devastating.
5: That's right. We haven't really seen what happens to the economy in this situation, but we are beginning to see what happens to businesses. It's the kind of problem, this starvation of businesses that can't be rectified by a few payments in the year 2020, and then they'll all be all right. And you consider the blow to retail, which is already challenged by the Internet as it, as it is before COVID, and then the new safety culture so that not only during COVID, but afterwards, people are afraid to shop What's going to happen to our town square? You know, all the stores on our town square, whatever is remaining. Um, and we like those stores, whatever, even when we own Amazon stock, we like those stores too. Uh, So that just is not coming through. Although maybe the market is beginning to recognize it in the recent days. We've seen a drop that that is, is is not coming through. Um, the the general well-being of the country. Um, is challenged, is threatened by our shutdown culture, um, and uh, it may never recover. Many things we love may, ne- may never recover.
1: Well, one of the things going on, too, Amity, is that um, small businesses in general are shut down. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Target stores are open, Walmart is open, Costco is open, Home Depot is open. Amazon obviously is thriving. I think, I think Target's stock has reached new, new highs. I mean, part of what's going on here is that small businesses are being sacrificed. Large businesses are, are, are frequently benefiting. And I don't understand the logic. Are you more likely to get COVID in a, in a small business than in a Target store?
5: That's right. Um, it's, we're picking winners or picking losers, as it may be. And that's always perverse because the government can't know who's better to help and who isn't. It, it, the government is just making a guess. Just as It makes a guess about masks or it makes a guess about um, ventilators or it makes a guess Uh, And this is just so brutal to see. Um, Long ago, I wrote a book called Forgotten Man, and the original Forgotten Man thinker said, when we all get together and help someone, maybe it's Home Depot, maybe it's a poor man, we hurt other people. The other people we hurt, we don't see how we hurt them. Those other people are the forgotten man. That phrase originally came from William Graham Sumner, that line. So we're we're creating a lot of forgotten men. We're forgetting a lot of men. We're shutting out a lot of people um, through our management of the economy during this crisis.
1: Amy Schlaes, thank you very much for being with us on the Dan Proft Show. We're going to go to a break here, and we will return with uh, George Perry.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. And by the way, I will also be filling in on Thursday and Friday of this week, so be sure to... Tune in on those, uh, those nights as well. We are joined now by George Perry. George is a former federal and state prosecutor, and fra- between 1978 and 1983, he was the chief of the Police Brutality and Misconduct Unit of the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. George, thanks for being on the program.
3: John, nice to be with you.
1: George, I want to talk to you about George George Floyd. Uh, His death uh, became a a pivotally important moment in history, really. I mean, we've all witnessed. We don't have to recite it. We've all witnessed Mm -hmm. the things that have spun out as a result of of his death uh, here in Minneapolis. And and the fact that that millions of people uh, witnessed that death or thought they did on uh, on video. The the cultural impact of this has really been extraordinary, hasn't it?
3: Well, yeah. And the... The the perception that uh, was caused by the widespread uh, broadcast of the video showing the last few minutes of Mr. Floyd's uh, arrest has led people to believe that the police caused his death. And uh, when I watched that video, having become familiar over the years with drug overdose deaths, And the manner in which police deal with drug overdoses, um, I felt that that really wasn't the whole story in terms of the police causing his death. And slowly, the prosecution has released more and more material. Uh, For example, they released transcripts of the body-worn video cameras worn by the police, uh, as well as the... Uh, autopsy and toxicology reports pertaining to Mr. Floyd's death, and once I was able to review all of that evidence, to me, the conclusion was clear that the police officers did not cause Mr. Floyd's death, and as a matter of fact, had no criminal intent in, in their handling of Mr. Floyd when they arrested him.
1: So George, I'm going to pause you there for a moment because we're going to come back and talk about the autopsy and the toxicological report and so on. Very, very important. But, but the, mm-hmm. the observation I want to make and get your thoughts on is the importance of that first eight-minute-long video that came out, and and it shows the officers kneeling on uh, George Floyd on the street there in Minneapolis, and one of the officers, Derek Chauvin, is is kneeling on his throat or neck or in that area. And and you and as you watch that video, you see uh, George Floyd get quieter, uh, stop moving. At one point, or maybe more than one point, you you hear him say, "I can't breathe." And millions of people uh, watch that video, and and they assumed that George Floyd couldn't breathe because the officers kneeling on his neck, and and they they believe that they are watching a man die as a result of uh, police action. And we see just constantly referred to, asserted as as an unquestionable fact, that these Minneapolis police officers murdered George Floyd. You see that all the time.
3: A couple of things. Number one, when you review all of the evidence in the case, including the videos that preceded that last eight minutes of video, what what comes out is number one george floyd began shouting that he couldn't breathe while he was still upright and mobile and he was saying that he said that seven times before he wound up on the ground nobody was kneeling on his neck nobody was you know pressing on his back or his chest Uh, the police were trying to get him seated in a a squad car and he was resisting that he was being non-compliant And through that whole process, he's shouting, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. So that when he's on the ground and he's saying the same thing, the question becomes, well, wait a minute. Why was he saying I can't breathe while he was still upright and mobile and no one was kneeling on his neck? And the answer to that question didn't become apparent until the toxicology report was received, and that was on May 31, 2020. The medical examiner in Hennepin County, and this is after charges have been brought against the police, they received the toxicology report, and the toxicology report showed that Mr. Floyd had a toxic overdose of fentanyl in his system, and as noted in the toxicology report, fentanyl depresses respiration and can lead to coma and death, and also in the literature as well as in the uh, statement by the chief medical examiner a toxic overdose of fentanyl can cause the lungs to fill up with a frothy fluid called edema and they found that mr floyd's lungs weighed two to three times normal at autopsy why did they weigh that that much or why were they did they weigh two to three times normal because they were filled with fluid, this edema. And the police, one of the police officers, officer King, at the scene, and this is also on the tape. He says to Floyd, you're foaming at the mouth. And Floyd said, yeah, I was, I've been hooping. Well, I don't know what hooping means, but the observation was made in real time that Mr. Floyd was foaming at the mouth. Well, that foaming at the mouth is also a symptom of edema. So when he is saying, While he's still upright, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. It's because his lungs are filling up with fluid. And that led to the agitation that he exhibited. And um, so when they have him on the ground and he's still saying, I can't breathe, it becomes clear that the reason he can't breathe is not because Officer Chauvin is kneeling on the side of his neck. Uh, And by the way, that, that. that neck restraint used by Officer Chauvin is taught to the Minneapolis Police Department. It's in their training materials. And there there is a photograph that I used in one of my articles taken from the training materials, showing a police officer kneeling on the side of a suspect's neck. This was not something Chauvin brought up on the fly or on the spur of the moment. This was part of their training on how you restrain someone who is non-compliant, agitated and incoherent, which Floyd was all of those things. So if you put it all together, what it comes down to is, Mr. Floyd had a toxic overdose of fentanyl in his system that led to the shutdown of his respiration, filled his lungs with fluid and caused him to to uh, say, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And he died either as a direct result of the fentanyl overdose or as the result of what is known as excited delirium, which is a condition where he exhibited all of the classic traits of someone suffering from excited delirium, which leads to sudden onset of cardiac arrhythmia and cardiac arrest. Now, we're talking with
1: the... Go ahead, Sergeant. Well, we're talking with yeah. the former prosecutor George Perry, and George, we've talked more than once about the idea of a fentanyl overdose, but let's get specific about that in terms of what the toxicology report Showed as I recall, it showed that that George Floyd's blood had I, I think the units is eleven, and I think the units are uh, micrograms per milliliter. Am uh, I saying uh, that right? Yeah, 11,
3: eleven nanograms of fentanyl per milliliter nanograms.
1: Okay. In any event, eleven yeah. is the is the, is the relevant number, and the yeah. literature uh, documents uh, fatal overdoses of fentanyl down at, at what level?
3: Well, in the toxicology report itself, there's there's a comment or reference section and says that the fatal overdose or toxic level of fentanyl is variable and has been reported to be as low as three nanograms per milliliter. And here he had 11 nanograms per milliliter. So he had over three times the potentially fatal dosage of fentanyl in his system. Now, for those who want to argue that while three nanograms per milliliter may kill someone who has no experience with fentanyl, there is, and you know, Floyd may well have been addicted to fentanyl, so it would take a larger dosage to kill him. There's a study out of Florida of 143 uh, fentanyl overdose deaths among fentanyl addicts, and they found that the median fatal dosage among fentanyl addicts was 9.8 nanograms per milliliter of blood and so Floyd exceeded that standard as well but George we got this,
1: we're gonna we're up against a hard break here let me just pause you okay. there for a moment we're gonna run to these messages and we'll be right back with more from George Perry oh,
4: boy.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: We are back on The Dan Proft Show, talking with former prosecutor George Perry about what happened to George Floyd. And before the break, George, we were talking about the fact that that Floyd had in his blood... Uh, a level of fentanyl that clearly uh could have been and likely was uh, fatal is that is that a fair statement
3: yeah that is that's that 's what he had
1: and in addition to that uh, before uh this famous eight eight and a half minute tape that everybody has seen. Uh, there, there's a tape that I think is about 18 minutes long. That's I think body cam footage that most people haven't seen, and and that tells us a number of things, including uh, that George Floyd was complaining repeatedly of of being unable to breathe when he was you know standing up, sitting down, moving around. Obviously, nobody kneeling on him, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 that. Inability to breathe, that shortness of breath, that is itself a, a symptom of, of fentanyl
3: overdose. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he said repeatedly, seven times I counted it on the tape while he's still upright and mobile. He says, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And uh, look, the, we're talking, we've been talking so far about the, the, the cause of death. Uh, These officers have been charged with murder, which means the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they acted with an intent to cause harm to Mr. Floyd, to cause his death. But if you look at the treatment that these officers afforded to Mr. Floyd, uh, they were any, I mean, they were actually quite considerate of his condition when they're trying to get him into the police squad car, this is well before he winds up on the ground and he's shouting, you know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. He was also saying things like, I'm claustrophobic. Don't put me in this car. I can't, I won't, you know, I'll die in here, man. And he's expressing this ideation that he's going to die and that he's scared, which by the way is classic for excited delirium. So, when the police are trying to get him into the squad car, just look at how they handled that situation. He's saying he's claustrophobic and he doesn't want to be in the squad car. They didn't hit him over the head with a nightstick. They didn't punch him slap him. They didn't use mace on him. They didn't use a taser on him. Instead, they're saying things like, well, OK, you're claustrophobic, or he says, I'm claustrophobic. And the response is, we'll, we'll roll the window down on the car if you'll just put your, your feet in. And at one point, I believe it's Officer Lane says, we'll turn the air conditioning on in the car. I mean, these are not brutal police officers setting out to harm this individual. But that's the manner in which they, they handled the situation. And at no time were blows struck, or were, was any injury inflicted on him. As a matter of fact, the autopsy report said that they found no life-threatening injuries when they did the autopsy of Mister Floyd. So, well, the
1: autopsy also documents. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong here, George, but I'm pretty yeah. sure the autopsy says that they found no damage in the neck or throat area.
3: Right, right. They found no no injury to the to the uh, Structures of the neck. Uh, now, the re-autopsy that was done by my old friend, uh, Michael Biden, the former uh, medical examiner of the city of New York. I mean, I've known Dr. Biden for 40 years. I've used him as, as a witness, expert witness in a number of my cases. They claim that they found on the left side of uh, Floyd's neck uh, abrasions on the skin indicating to them that the kneeling on the right side of Floyd's neck uh, was done with such pressure that uh, that impeded the flow of blood-borne oxygen to Floyd's brain. But when I look at that, number one, if you, if, you look at the, if you look at the tape closely, there are three times at least when Mr. Floyd is on the ground. And by the way, he winds up on the ground because he says over and over again, I wanna lay down, I wanna lay down, I wanna lay down. I'm going down, I'm going down. This is why we're trying to get him into the squad car. So they they give up trying to get him into the squad car and they bring him out and they put him on the ground because that's where he wants to be. So they have to secure him on the ground so he won't injure himself further. He hit his head inside the squad car and they called for an ambulance when he hit his head inside the squad car. That was the first call for medical assistance. So they get him down on the ground and they are obligated since they have him in custody to keep him from injuring himself further. And so officer Chauvin is using this neck restraint where he's kneeling on the side of Mr. Floyd's neck. Well, you can see Floyd's head come off the pavement at least three times that I've counted and officer Chauvin's knee comes up as Floyd's neck comes up off the ground. If Chauvin was kneeling on Floyd's neck with sufficient force to shut down the flow of blood through both carotid arteries, because you have a carotid artery on each side of your neck, if he had been kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck with sufficient force to shut down both carotid arteries, you would have seen Floyd expire or, or become unconscious in a matter of four or five seconds. Because that's what happens with a chokehold. When you shut down both carotid arteries, the subject goes out cold. Well, that didn't happen. This went on for eight minutes on the ground. And during that eight minutes, the fentanyl is kicking in stronger. Floyd is clearly agitated. And again, exhibiting all of the uh, symptoms of excited delirium, which is, I've said before, can lead to sudden cardiac arrhythmia, and in fact, in the autopsy report, the lead cause of death, such, a, such as it is stated, because it's not clearly stated in the autopsy report, which is very strange, but right. they put it down to cardiac arrest with complications caused by, subdued by the police. I'm not familiar with the term subdued, but that's the word they use. So if you put all of this together, you have... Officer Chauvin, people were looking at Officer Chauvin kneeling on the side of his neck, and yet, A, that's an approved technique by the Minneapolis Police Department, and B, he was not kneeling with such force as he would cause the blood and oxygen to be cut off going to Mr. Floyd's brain. Something else is going on here. And when Mr. Floyd is saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and he's calling for his mother, what you're watching is someone who is in the terminal stage of a drug overdose and quite possibly about to expire from cardiac arrhythmia brought on by excited delirium. That's why it's still a horrible tape, but what looks like they're doing really was not the cause of Mr. Floyd's death. And we know that now because we have the toxicology report, which the authorities did not have at the time that they brought these charges, they rushed to judgment. They brought these charges before they had the results of the toxicology
1: report. Well, in fact, the mayor of Minneapolis was demanding demanding to know why these police officers were were still on the street and hadn't been arrested. You know, like uh, the next yep. day. You know, long before the the facts were known. We have to and, run and to well, a we have to run to a break okay. right now, George. But we'll be back after okay. these messages with more uh, from George Perry. Hello.
0: ProftShow.com.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with George Perry, former state and federal prosecutor, who is very closely studied the facts the evidence relating to the death of george floyd and we've been talking about the fact that the the medical evidence and the physical evidence uh, appear to show that the death was due to uh, an overdose of uh, of fentanyl and so george perry uh, it's it's a little bit ironic because i think this the whole hysteria that's that's spun out over the death of george floyd Really has grows out of the fact that so many people have seen this eight-and-a-half-minute tape, but very few have seen the 18 minutes that came before. And so people saw George Floyd lying on the street and didn't understand why. What's he doing on the street? He's being cruelly treated. But we know now that he wanted to be on the street. The police officers just wanted him to sit in the backseat of the squad car until the ambulance came, but he wouldn't do it. And so they're accommodating yep. his wishes. And people think that they're seeing a man die from having a police officer kneel on his neck. But the toxicology suggests that what they're seeing is one of many thousands of Americans who sadly have died from opioid overdoses.
3: Well, yeah. And keep in mind that this whole narrative that the police sadistically and slowly murdered George Floyd, number one, to, to accept that theory, you would have to believe that the police, against their own self-interest, carried out this killing in broad daylight in front of civilian witnesses who had cell phone cameras and who were recording the event. And the police were wearing body-worn cameras that were also recording the event. And, to zoom, again, going to the murder theory, that while they were in the act of killing their victim, they twice called for an ambulance to come to the scene to render medical care to their intended victim. I mean, the the whole murder theory makes no sense whatsoever. You just have to apply common sense once you have the facts. I mean, they, the first call for an ambulance came when he when he hit his head inside the squad car and he suffered a minor cut, and so, they, okay, they called for an ambulance. But then when he's on the ground, and he's clearly deteriorating while he's on the ground, they placed another call for an ambulance to step it up, to get there sooner, because they were concerned about this guy. And not only that, when the ambulance got there, the police immediately jumped up, put Mr. Floyd in the ambulance, and one of the officers, Officer Lane, got in the ambulance and performed CPR on Mr. Floyd to help out the EMTs in the ambulance. He did CPR on Mr. Floyd all the way to the hospital. And these are the officers who have been charged with murder. And in terms of how truly outrageous this whole thing is, the day, two days after the police had been charged with murder, the medical examiner receives the toxicology report. All of of these charges were brought before the toxicology report arrives. And at 7.30 at night on May 31, 2020, the medical examiner has a video conference with two assistant county attorneys who are the prosecutors in the case, presumably. And he goes over the the toxicology report and he says, well, you know, Floyd had 11 nanograms of fentanyl per milliliter Uh, under normal circumstances. That's a toxic Dose, and then he says later on in this conference if we had found floyd dead at home or anywhere else and there were no other contributing factors i'm yes this is just another way of saying hey guys guess what you know these these cops you just charged with murder this was an overdose death so, George no.
1: Perry, we have just one minute to go before the before yeah. the hard break here, and I'll have to let you go. But as a okay. former prosecutor, the last question I've got is: Are they going to be able to get a conviction of these four police officers?
3: Well, you have to look at what's going on with Black Lives Matter going out to people's homes and threatening them in, in their homes, like happened to the chief of the Minneapolis Police Union. Anybody serving on a jury, sitting as as a juror on this case, is going to have to wonder. If I vote to acquit these, these officers, will I have a visitation from a bunch of thugs who are going to come to my neighborhood and do God knows what? Uh, if everything was normal, if we were in normal times where mob rule wasn't, wasn't going on, um, I would think the prosecution would have a very difficult time getting a conviction. But, as I say, these are not normal times. Any juror who would vote to acquit is going to have to wonder, what's going to happen to me if I follow the evidence and the law and I acquit these officers?
1: George Perry, thank you very much for being with us on the Dan Proft Show. We're going to go to a break and be right back.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This this, This is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. One thing that we haven 't talked about much uh, so far in the in the program is what 's on everybody 's minds, and that is of course, the election of two thousand twenty preeminently the presidential election. but of course, Republicans are fighting to hang on to the Senate, which is vitally important, and many other important elections are going on as well. But I want to focus primarily on on the presidential election, which is on everybody 's mind. And, and I, I would start with the observation that never in American history, to my knowledge, certainly not not in my lifetime, have we seen anything remotely like this. Despite everything, despite the Russia hoax, despite the ridiculous Ukraine impeachment, and despite all the brickbats that have been thrown against President Trump on a daily basis by by uh, virtually every newspaper in the country, by by all the broadcast networks, by most of the cable news networks, by academia, by the public schools, uh, by, by the entertainment industry, you name it. Uh, President Trump has, has, been, uh, re- has received um, insults and slanders from those sources uh, since before the time he was inaugurated. But despite all of that, if as of January or February of this year, if somebody had asked me how likely is President Trump to get reelected, my answer would have been probably 99%. And the reason for that is that any president who is running for re-election wants to be able to run on a platform of peace and prosperity. And history tells us that if a president can run credibly on a platform of peace and prosperity, he's going to win. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way it goes. And as of the beginning of 2020, President Trump was in perfect position to do that. Uh, in terms of peace, uh, he was nearing the end of his first term. There had been no significant foreign conflicts. Well, at the same time, he had managed to, uh, to wipe out ISIS. And in many ways, uh, President Trump had advanced American interests uh, abroad, and yet he had done so without uh, uh, shooting wars. And so uh, peace uh, was one that he could definitely chalk up in the plus column. And then the second issue is prosperity. And here again, uh, Trump was in in terrific position because the economy was probably the strongest it had ever been in American history. Certainly one of the strongest economies we've ever seen. And, And President Trump, through his combination of policies, seemed to have solved the problem of slow wage growth, which goes back for decades that even though the GDP continues to grow, wages for most people have been relatively stagnant. Now, that's partly because the cost of benefits has been skyrocketing due to health care costs. Nevertheless, the perception has been stagnating uh, wages. And sure enough, not only did President Trump have the economy growing briskly, but for the first time in years, wages were rising, and wages were particularly rising at the lower end. And, and we were seeing record uh, low unemployment, record high employment. And that was particularly true for minorities. We, we had the best black employment record ever, the best black wages ever. We had the best Hispanic employment ever. And so President Trump um, had a very easy road to reelection, in my opinion, running on a platform of peace and prosperity. Well, then things started to get screwy. And the first way in which things got screwy was the Wuhan virus or uh, COVID-19, which, which struck around, what, March. And, um, and through no fault of the president's, and then there's no, there's no sane theory on which uh, COVID-19 is somehow his fault. That virus worked its way through the United States, is still working its way through our population, just as it did in, in Europe and just as it is doing in other, other regions of the world. And 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 COVID-19 really reset the game clock, uh, if you will, in terms of the presidential election. Because instead of getting to run on a platform of really unprecedented prosperity, uh, we were in this situation where businesses were shut down. It wasn't the virus that hurt the economy. It was the shutdowns. But nevertheless, Businesses were being shut down, people were laid off, unemployment skyrocketed, the federal government swung into action in a variety of ways, both to try to combat the virus with more or less success and also to try to cushion the economic blow. And I think most people think that the the federal government and and many of the state governments did a pretty good job of that, but that really isn't even the point. Uh, Really the point is that instead of being able to run on a platform of of undeniable prosperity, uh, President Trump was in the position of having to explain uh, what was going on because things weren't so prosperous all of a sudden. And then the next thing that happened is the riots uh, following the death of George Floyd, apparently, as we uh, talked about with George Perry, uh, apparently of uh, uh, of a fentanyl overdose. But nevertheless, those riots have spread across the country, driven by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, And uh, cities, including Minneapolis, here in my home state of Minnesota, have gone up in flames. There's been rioting, looting, arson. And so now, all of a sudden, um, the peace half of Trump's re-election plank is also in doubt. Do we really have peace in America with all the rioting and looting and arson that are going on? And so, in, in my opinion... These events of the last year have totally reshuffled the deck and have put the Democrats back into a game which they seem to be entirely out of. At this point, I'm still fairly confident that Trump is going to win. We're seeing the polls uh, shifting in his direction inexorably, slowly but surely. And and I think that Trump is going to win, although I'd, I'd put the percentage at more like 60% rather than 99% like I would have been in January. And I think the reason has a lot to do with Joe Biden. In 2016, I was one of a handful of pundits that actually predicted that Trump was going to win. And I I made that prediction not because I fully understood Trump's appeal to a lot of voters. I understand it now, but I didn't didn't really get it then. But I predicted that he was going to win because he was running against Hillary Clinton. And I, I thought Hillary Clinton was an unbelievably bad candidate who was never going to get elected president. And that turned out to be right. Well, four years later, uh, Donald Trump is running against Joe Biden, possibly the only worse uh, potential opponent than Hillary Clinton. And I think people around the country are starting to see Joe Biden in action, uh, starting to hear him try to answer questions, trying, to, starting to observe him as he comes out of his basement and slowly, reluctantly begins to campaign. And I think it's pretty obvious to most people that Joe Biden is not mentally or physically up to the rigors of the presidency. And that's putting it, frankly, pretty kindly. So that, as I see it, is the state of the 2020 presidential race.
0: Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: We've come to the end of the Dan Proft Show for tonight. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline. It's been a great pleasure filling in for Dan. We've talked about a lot of interesting things, and we've got two more shows. I've got two more shows coming up this week. Uh, one on Thursday and one on Friday. We're getting some terrific uh, guests lined up. And by the way, Dan's uh, bookers are the best I've ever worked with in in radio in that regard. And we'll have some really interesting guests. But what I'm particularly excited about we're going to have on, on Thursday, he's a guy I've never spoken with. His name is Ricky Rebel. I don't think that's probably the name his mother gave him. But the name he goes by is Ricky Rebel. And he's a musician, he's a singer, and he's done a number of terrific videos. You really should go on YouTube and look him up, Ricky Rebel. But he did one that just got uploaded, I think, to YouTube a couple of days ago. It's already got, I don't know, may have a couple million views by now. I wrote about it and put it up on on Powerline over the weekend. And it's called MAGA. And and the premise for this video, it takes off from an incident a, a month or two ago in Beverly Hills where there was something called the Trump Unity Bridge and some Black Lives Matter uh, protesters or rioters attacked it and assaulted some of the Trump uh, supporters who were there and so forth. And so this video kind of recreates that scene. It begins by kind of recreating that scene, but then the people there start bursting into song and they start dancing and so on. And this guy, Ricky Rebel, who's a young young guy, probably in his 20s, it uh, takes the lead and, and the song is sung to the tune of YMCA, only it's M-A-G-A, Make America Great Again, and it is beautifully, beautifully well done uh, by Ricky Rebel, by Joy Villa, by a group called the Deplorable Singers, uh, singing, singing backup, and what I really like about the video is how happy it is, how cheerful how joyous, how optimistic and one of the things that we're seeing uh, these days is the incredible level of hate that emanates from the left. You, you see it every day you see it in the insane attacks on President Trump. you see it in the antifa rioters who are still rioting months every you know every every night for months now they've been rioting in Portland as well as in cities across the United States, Minneapolis, not far from where I live, Seattle, Rochester, New York, a variety of of others. We see this incredible hate constantly uh, coming from the left. And one thing that I think is important is for people to understand that conservatives aren't like that. Conservatives aren't haters. Conservatives are, are generally happy people, which, by the way, is kind of a truism of sociology. There's all kinds of data that shows that that's true. The sad people, the unhappy people, they tend to be liberals and we see that over and over in our politics. So one of the things I love about this MAGA video is just how upbeat, how cheerful, how happy it is and I want to congratulate Ricky Rebel on that when I have him on the Dan Proft show on Thursday. We're going to play the play the video, play the audio so you can hear it. And then I'll be talking to uh, Ricky Rebel. We'll have that and much more. So I hope to see you again on Thursday and Friday of this week.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.